We're going to read from John 18, verse 33 through 37 this morning. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did the others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the year was 1925. I was not born yet, although you might be surprised, or at least my kids would be. Al Capone had just taken over the bootlegging racket in Chicago. The Mount Rushmore Monument in South Dakota had been proposed. The first, first march of a radical group called the Ku Klux Klan had just taken place in Washington, D.C. The New Yorker magazine published its first issue. And an Austrian-born German named Adolf had just led a failed coup d'etat of the German Reich, published his political manifesto, Mein Kampf, all from a, of a Bavarian prison. This is a lot going on in a year, and, uh, and I'm barely scratching the surface of what was going on between World War I and World War II. At this time, Pope Pius XI published what Catholics would call an encyclical on December 11th as the year wound down. And in the letter, he established a new feast in the church calendar known as Christ the King. And years later, it was moved to the last day of the liturgical year, and that day is today. You might not know that, but today is Christ the King Sunday. Life is full of circles and cycles. As is evident today, the seasons change. We have summer, fall, winter, spring. People are born and people die. Shopping malls are created and then eventually they turn into a spirit Halloween before they are redeveloped into something else. Seeds germinate and become plants, which produce new seeds before dying or becoming dormant. A new season of NFL football begins and the Minnesota Vikings eventually lose. You pick your new favorite show, that sort of thing. City of Des Moines tears up Fleur Drive again and tries again, so on. As change happens throughout our lives, what stays the same? What remains steady from year to year and namely binds the various components of a lifetime together? I can't know for sure, but I do wonder if Pope Pius anticipated some sliver of the immense change that would be coming in the 20th century and beyond, and wanted the church to remember that no matter what happens, Jesus is on the throne. The way many of our lives are structured today leaves little room for this kind of reflection. What are the rhythms defining our lives? What criteria do we use to decide whether to do something once or to do it a hundred times? Who gets a say in this and who doesn't? And why? So people who are really into things like habits, habit stacking, habit hacking, 
I don't know, there's probably a lot of terminology I don't know. They, honestly, they seem kind of intense to me. Maybe a little bit intimidating. Some days they sound inspiring, like gurus. Uh, but other days, I just, they just make me want to give up. But for our purposes, I want to mention two things that I do think related to habits that I've discussed a bit here to frame our exploration of Christ as the king today. One is that our habits tend to make us. Of course, I don't mean that they are deterministic or they inevitably define us apart from our own will. Only that rhythms we establish often get repeated over and over again and rarely without serious reflection. So repeated activities, they have a, a sneaky power and an authority that often goes unnoticed. Practically speaking, what we did last Tuesday might look a lot like what we do next Tuesday and the 50 other Tuesdays this year. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, it's just that Tuesdays are a seventh of your life. We wanna pay attention to that which forms us in such substantial chunks of our personhood and the frameworks we use to, to make decisions. So a question in this area is to ask is something like, what am I giving the formative power of repetition in my life? And why? Two, our habits tend to reflect or accommodate to what we value. This can be positive and negative. And I don't necessarily mean like good and evil. It's more like the yin and yang pieces fitting together, like a puzzle maybe. So let's imagine you eat oatmeal for breakfast every morning. I don't know why I just looked at Kate there. <laughs> I doubt you eat oatmeal every morning. But just because you do, doesn't necessarily mean you like oatmeal or value it in and of itself. It could be that oatmeal is what you can afford or what you, because what you really value is your apartment and eating oatmeal or riding your bike or clipping coupons, they just help you ensure that you have enough money to do what you love, which is stay in your apartment. So the oatmeal is a habit done in the negative. It's a repeated activity to accommodate for the necessity or the positive of apartment life. You could say your breakfast habit, habit is bent around or conforms to the in the negative to the shape of the positive of your apartment budget. So the high level priority of where you live defines many other aspects in this example of your life. And in that way, it reflects that which you value most. So, how does any of this have anything to do with the kingdom of Christ? Well, as disciples of Jesus, also known as Christians, both how we spend our resources and where we give our attention are things we pay attention to. Or at least that's part of the invitation Jesus gives us as he beckons us to follow him. But how? So as I said earlier, life is full of circles and cycles. So let's start with one quick example of the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, God gives us a gift. One seventh of our lives to stop, reflect, remember, and rest. We remember who and whose we are. We are beloved children of God. You are beloved children of God. Held by his promises, empowered by his spirit, moved by his love, that sort of thing. If you recall, Jesus was rebuked several times for breaking the Sabbath. 
Let's look at one such encounter in Mark 2, 23 through 28. It says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And also, and he also gave some, uh, gave some to his companions. Then he said to him, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So here Jesus is revealing himself to have supreme authority over the Sabbath. And not only that, he's equating himself with God the Father as the giver of the law. And that's a very big deal in Jewish culture. So Jesus is starting to peel back the layers of why something like the Sabbath would be instituted in the first place. He highlights that things like Sabbath are created to open our eyes and soften our hearts, so to speak. Sabbath contains no power in and of itself. It's a container, a holy place, an ark charged with the presence of God. Jesus wants to experience the joy of this way of living, which can only be found in communion with him. So a time to reflect on Christ the King is a fitting close to the series we've been going through called Living Letters. Since the beginning of September, we've examined how God reveals himself through people's lives. As we've looked at the lives of people who are well-known and some behind the scenes, my prayer has been that we be reminded that God desires to work through your life in this church, in this place, in other places, in other churches, and other people. He wants to write a better story. And of course, that doesn't always mean it will look flashy. Sometimes, maybe even a lot of the time, it will involve patience, perseverance, confusion, curiosity, obscurity, and faith. A lot of circles and cycles here. If you've ever read the Bible, you know it's full of surprises. And I would add that it's pretty R-rated, which is a surprise to me. As we enter the Advent season, in, during December, we'll take time to remember one of the biggest surprises of all time, and that is the miracle of the incarnation. This improbable story is a large part of why we gather today. Jesus was born a human. So during Advent, we'll look at this crescendo leading up to the arrival of Jesus. And throughout the Old Testament, we see prophecies foretelling a coming king, a messiah, in Micah 5.2, we read, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from, old, from of old, from ancient times. So the ancient one who will be the ruler of Israel, of course, is Jesus. The Magi, this passage, um, quoted this passage when they visited Jesus after his birth. Matthew 2, 1 through 6 reflects this. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet was, has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So the Magi's question is both the trailhead of this sermon and a question we can adapt in some way for ourselves today. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Maybe for us, it could sound a little bit more like, where are you, King Jesus? You have revealed yourself as the Messiah, and I am here to worship you today. Now, there are many facets to the kingship of Jesus, but for our, today's purposes, we're going to look at one by way of Pope Pius XI, like I mentioned before, whose encyclical was 98 years ago. And this creates like a beautiful base layer for us to paint on top of. In 1925, he wrote this, along with a host of others, but his name's on it. It has, been, it has long been a com common custom to give Christ the metaphorical title of king because of the high degree of perfection whereby he excels all creatures. So he is said to reign in the hearts of men, both by reason of the keenness of his intellect and the extent of his knowledge, and also because he is very truth. And it is from him that truth must be obediently received by all mankind. He reigns, too, in the wills of men, for in him the human will was perfectly and entirely obedient to the holy will of God. And further, by his grace and inspiration, he so subjects our free will as to incite us to the most noble endeavors. He is the king of hearts, too, by reason of his charity with exceed, which exceedeth all knowledge, and his mercy and kindness which draw all men to him, for never has it been known, nor never will it ever be, that man be, so, be loved so much and so universally, universally as Jesus Christ. So Jeff Bezos, he's kind of like the king of e-commerce at Amazon. Charles III is the king of England. And that creepy mascot guy from Burger King is the king of burgers. But Christ is the king of all these kings. He's a king of an entirely different element of our lives, and that is of our hearts. Or as the, the pontiff put it, Jesus is the king of hearts. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that all people give their affection to Jesus as followers of Christ, of course. It simply means that the hearts of mankind are included in the jurisdiction of Jesus Christ. He doesn't force himself upon us, but invites us into a relationship. And that sets the tone for a kingdom with a decidedly different set of values from what we usually see in the world. Where are you, King Jesus? You have revealed yourself as the Savior, and I am here to worship you today. God's kingdom is unshakable and eternal, 
By contrast, the world's leaders are constantly jockeying for power or attempting to shore up support from allies or eliminate threats. But none of them can do this with any amount of certainty that the rule will not run out. The hard reality is it has a deadline. Jesus rules from a different place, a different posture, a different position. The true author and therefore the truest authority. No sense of threat. Nothing beyond his knowledge. Jesus doesn't need to show up on the earth to reclaim territory. No, Jesus takes flesh, takes on flesh to invite his created and beloved back into a relationship. He longs to restore that which is broken by sin and death. And as he overcomes the curse, he teaches us the ways of his kingdom and what it means to image him on earth. Okay, so how does the kingship of Christ transform our hearts? Let's look briefly at three ways. One, Christ's rule brings stability. So if you're like me, sometimes it's difficult to imagine the word rule as anything other than the word oppress. I have spent too many hours meditating on bad leaders, corruption, hypocrisy, manipulation, coercion, and much more. It's not difficult for me to let various so-called kings and kingdoms take up my attention and have them become the primary actors forming my imagination for what ruling and reigning look like. It is entirely logical to care about who has authority over you. And this is especially so in our hearts. But if we become obsessed with that which is malformed in the world, we risk it becoming our starting point for all future action. In short, we unwittingly hand power over to things we're trying to flee. And we are, from when our minds are consumed with our concerns over them. For example, if your only reference points for a mo- for reference point, reference point for a mom and dad is that they're harsh or demanding. It can be hard to see God as a loving parent. The flip side is that knowing how to be a good parent yourself can also be difficult if you've never seen healthy examples. Suppose your experience with pastors, like I mentioned, is that they're, they're controlling or they use fear tactics to manipulate people or protect themselves. In that case, you may have difficulty reading the Apostle Paul's pastoral epistles in the New Testament. On the positive side, knowing what to expect or seek out can be challenging if you've never been in a church with a healthy pastor. And if you've ever been disappointed in your government leaders, which I'm sure nobody ever has been disappointed in their government leaders, you have much to discuss with the early church. Conversely, Knowing what to hope for in government leaders can also be challenging if you've never seen a government for its leaders functioning well. To whom we entrust our hearts is opening ourselves up to them in some way. There is risk involved. It requires a certain level of vulnerability. And the more intimate the relationship, the more trust is needed. As I've mentioned before, that includes your relationship with yourself, or for our purposes today, how you care for your own heart. 
If you've been beaten down by other people's perceived or communicated expectations, you can begin to internalize that language of judgment. You wind up entrusting your heart to your own internal critic instead of the voice of God's spirit. And that leaves you in a cycle of unhealthy self-condemnation with no clear path forward. You become your own tyrant. But there is such good news in Christ, beautiful, glorious, take a deep breath of fresh air news in Christ. The most dramatic act of faith is entrusting oneself, mind, body, and spirit to God. Not only who you are today, but who you'll be in the future. It's a type of reverent yielding, a joyful relief in the sufficiency and goodness of a person who wants to watch over you. One who created you, Jesus wants to be the caretaker of your soul. The question, I guess, for us is, will you let him, or can you find it in your heart to trust him? Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29 says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus loves meeting us in our unmet longings or our lack of direction. One of humanity's biggest surprise storylines is that God became one of us, a human, a, a being of unfathomable power, and goodness, and wonder, is humble. A big twist is that Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, is a gentle and humble king of a kingdom. Unlike Caesar or King Charles, Jesus is the one who John sees in the apocalyptic vision saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the one, the one. And yet he shows up to wash feet and heal the unclean and reveal himself as a worthy caretaker of earth and humanity. So listen to this exchange in John 18 that was read before between Pilate and Jesus, right before Jesus' crucifixion. It says, Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? I'm just gonna pause for a second. This has gotta be like one of the sassiest conversations I can imagine, right? Verse 34, is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight and to prevent my arrest by, Jewish, by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Ah, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. Okay, so first off, Pilate sounds like he's ready to sign like a seven-figure Spotify podcast deal at this point, right? What is truth, right? It's like very, the, the sass is high, but Jesus is too. And Jesus says, he sounds like he's from another planet. My kingdom is not of this world. It's like, what? 
And then you followed up with this little nugget. If it were of this world, my disciples would be like ambushing this place. But you know, you're good. So you dodged a bullet there, Pilate. Jesus is in complete control. He is voluntarily submitting himself to this execution. He knows he's going to die, but he's subverting the rulers of the day every step of the way. Jesus shows himself to be sovereign over life and death. Where there is turmoil, he brings peace. Where there is confusion, he brings wisdom. Where there is abuse, he brings justice. Where there is pain, he brings healing. Where there is disappointment, he brings comfort. This is what the rule of King Jesus looks like in our minds, bodies, and hearts. This is a different type of kingdom. Do not shy away from the power of Jesus because it's different. To be thought of by God is to hear a resounding yes to that which is of the highest good. It is to find yourself fully loved. To be cared for by God is to share joy and freedom with the true and truest king. Two, Christ's rule secures our identity. By his mercy, Jesus brings us into his royal family. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus invites us to join in the work of serving as priests to the earth. We get the incredible privilege of caring for creation, caring for people. Remember a modified question from the Magi? Where are you, King Jesus? What are you up to? You have revealed yourself as the Savior, and I'm here to worship you. Where is he? What God's serving people. We're called to join him in this holy work. This is the task of a Jesus follower. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden to work the garden and keep it to be fruitful and multiply. They were to be like little G gods on earth, made in God's image, taking care of this beautiful place. That is still the invitation today. This is an ongoing learning with Christ. This looks a little bit more like apprenticeship and discipleship, that sort of thing. So remember, as we read in Matthew 20, his kingdom is not of this world, but he also says to take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So we get to learn from God. Why would we resist this kind of invitation? Maybe it's because it runs so counter, honestly, to the culture of consumerism. Maybe we expect something more like upgrade your account before your trial expires and you'll get five exclusive access bonus lessons to get a tote bag and then, you know, right, you go, you get the idea. There's no catch. In Christ, we become students of the most brilliant, happy teacher ever. The one who has all knowledge, who knows our capacity and our desires. He lets us try and fail and try again. And in my experience, it's easy to miss this component of how Jesus relates to our hearts. He teaches us how his heart works when he loves us through our failures. This is how we learn. 
His spirit in us testifies to his unconditional love and empowers us to pass it on. But another component to this is that we collectively become the body of Christ. In Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, it puts it this way. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Or in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. When we become Jesus followers, we find ourselves in Christ. We become part of the body of Christ. Jesus affirms both our individual humanity and yet refashions us into glorious beings who we are intended to be, Jesus imaging beings. This identity is a gift we learn to cooperate with. It's a relearning process from striving to make something of ourselves to walking with the creator and perfecter of life. Honestly, that's kind of a relief to me. Where are you, King Jesus? You've revealed yourself as the Savior, and I'm here to worship you. The third is Christ's rule moves us. So Jesus rules by law, the law of love and without violating anyone. He adopts us into his family, and we receive a new identity in the body of Christ. And lastly, the kingship of Christ moves our hearts to share the goodness of God with others. Back in John 18, remember what Jesus said to Pilate? He said, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. I mean, whew, that is a bold claim. This is a call to listen to and learn from Jesus. He is not being very vague here. Jesus is the living word of God. He is the word made flesh. Remember what Pope Pius said? He said, he reigns too in the wills of men, for in him the human will was perfectly and obedient, entirely obedient to the will of God. That's Jesus. And further, by his grace and inspiration, he so subjects our free will as to incite us to the most noble endeavors. So it's Christ's royal kingly love and inspiration that incite us to choose the most noble endeavors. And oh my goodness, Gateway Church, if there's one thing that you could walk away with today, it's that please let that be the fuel in your tanks. That Christ's grace and inspiration, his goodness, would be what incites us to the most noble endeavors. This is goodness upon goodness. This is grace upon grace. God longs to empower you to do good in the world. And the world could really use people like you to bring the love of Christ to others. In a meal, in a kind word, in a job well done, in prayer, in meditation, in volunteering, in loving your neighbor, in generosity, in sharing the message of reconciliation, in being a peacemaker in your neighborhood. The rule of Christ means that as ambassadors of reconciliation, we aren't stuck schlepping something to make money, to make a name, to go public with a company, to build a movement, or craft the perfect brand. Honestly, Jesus really did not seem that concerned about that kind of thing. 
The kingdom of God is safe. It is successful, you could say. Instead, we can share the grace and goodness of God without end. Our dad's the king, and he wants everyone in on this. This is not a zero-sum game. So in closing, hear again the Magi's actual statement that I've been modifying a little bit. They said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The instinct of the Magi was to move toward the king, toward the Messiah, toward the light, the star. The Magi responded to the arrival of King Jesus with worship. And this is where we find ourselves today, worshiping the king of hearts. We, have, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. <laughs>